I woke up in Abby's bed and the cops showed up. But I knew I could talk my way out of it. They let him go. They let him go. They couldn't breathe. I got my phone out and I showed them pictures of me and Abby together. Uh, they did ask me to leave, but they didn't file any charges. I, I, I didn't know what to do anymore. I wanted to give up. I didn't deserve that. I'm going to make Abby pay for calling the cops. Even though Abby and Will ended their relationship, she can't shake him. She feels his presence everywhere, every day, like she's trapped with no way out. Can Will even stop Will anymore? I'm Allison Becker, and this is Obsession, a podcast co-produced by Focus Features and LA Times Studios and funded by Focus Features in support of the film Greta. We've heard about unrequited love, obsessive love, and other inappropriate attachments in this series. We've looked at how and why we get so consumed by our thoughts and feelings, and how involuntary they can be. We've explored how these fixations can bring us to the very brink of our sanity, making rational decisions nearly impossible. When taken to extremes, obsessions can lead to the darkest of places and bring on behavior that seems unthinkable to a healthy mindset, like harassment, stalking, violence, even murder. In this episode, we'll look at the popularity of social media and technology and how they've given rise to cyberstalking. There are varying degrees, but it can upend, even destroy, a life. In 2017, a wealthy Arizona man went on one date with the then 31-year-old Jacqueline Addis. After parting ways that night, she began barraging him with messages and following him around town. Frequently, she threatened violence. She once broke into his home, bringing along her two dogs, a bottle of wine, and some food, which she was preparing when the police showed up. On the passenger seat of her car, a large knife. Over the next 10 months, Jacqueline sent more than 159,000 text messages to the man. That's roughly one text every two and a half minutes, 24 hours a day. Her obsession and cyberstalking landed her in prison. While incarcerated, she proclaimed over and over that they were soulmates. Now, her behavior was really extreme, but there is one piece of her story that I think we can all relate to, wanting and waiting for return messages. Modern technology has truly changed how relationships grow or don't grow. We met author Caroline Kepnes in our fourth episode. She's back to give us her thoughts on social media and how texting has changed relationships. Her best-selling book, You, now a popular TV series, explores this, as well as cyberstalking and obsessive love. I think that especially now, where when we live in a world where we have all of this monitoring that's available to us 24-7, so let's say you start seeing someone, and it's casual, and they ask you to do something, and you say you don't feel like it. And then a few hours later, a friend of yours wants to go somewhere, you go. You post a picture on social media. That guy sees it. He... Ten, like 10 years ago, would never have seen it, would have had to find someone who ran into you or been literally stalking you. Our brains haven't adjusted to seeing things that we just didn't used to see and had no way of knowing. So that feeds the beast of feeling rejected, feeling slighted. We have all of these new wounds that we have to deal with if we set ourselves up for it by like 
looking after someone who doesn't really owe us anything just because we feel that they do. I always think that whoever invented read receipts is just a monster because there's nothing like seeing that timestamp, the, the numbers, knowing that someone read what you said and didn't feel compelled to reply. You have no way of knowing if they even read it, if they accidentally opened it, if they're busy. But it's a really good example of how this is so mentally unhealthy because it, it's creating narcissism where you're sitting there, you see that time, you want to know what happened. So it's like I get all of the narcissism that comes from this because when you have all of this available every single day at all hours, it is exhausting. And when you meet someone and you have to establish your communication style at this accelerated rate, it's crazy. Like when, if I, if I meet someone, I'm like, okay, if he texts, do I text, if I text him back right away, I'm saying that I'm always here and I'm a talker and I'm available. If I wait a couple hours, oh my God, I like this person and now I'm making them wait. I have conversations like this with my friends literally all the time. And we throw around the term stalking without even really thinking about it, right? Caroline Kepnes agrees. I mean, in 2012, I feel like the jokiness was beginning about, oh, follow me and I'll follow you. All of these words took on this new jovial meaning, following, stalking, and even the word friendship first being like made into a joke by Friendster. It's a light word now. But cyberstalking is no joke. In fact, it's never been easier to be a stalker. Director Neil Jordan shows this to chilling effect in his new film, Greta, where he shows just how easily the personal information we share publicly on social media can be used against us. Nobody wants to hide these days. It seems nobody wants to hide, does it? Because everyone's planting their, their most intimate moments and their most intimate emotions on Facebook and on the internet, aren't they, and on Twitter. Uh, I mean, it's, it's terrifying, actually, if you decide to sit down on your computer and find out anything about anybody within probably 15 minutes you can invade somebody's life, you know? You can find out everything about them, find out where they live, what their tastes are, what their, you know, what their weaknesses are, what their obsessions are, what their attachments are. It's uh, an extraordinary kind of phenomenon of contemporary life, really, isn't it? That people just share everything about themselves, with, you know, without, uh, without any thought of the consequences. All this time spent tracking people online, it's just not good for us in the long run. UCLA psychiatrist Dr. Timothy Fong is starting to look more closely at the idea of digital technology wellness. I view the internet as the syringe. It's the syringe to both helping us you know, improve our lives, think like IV antibiotics, but it's also the syringe that can create all sorts of damage, i.e. delivering heroin and fentanyl to our veins. So that's how I'm viewing it now, and it's much more powerful than I, I viewed it about 10, 15 years ago, for sure. How do we learn about dealing with other feelings that are hard. Boredom, loneliness, emptiness, uncertainty. These are the things that we have to learn how to manage and, and accept that these are normal human behaviors. So if though you find that your experience online is bringing you isolation, loneliness, misery, emotional pain, doubt, anger, then that's a relationship that has to be looked at and probably with a mental health professional to help navigate you through as Will's anger escalated, he struck back at Abby to cause her emotional pain and fear in a public way that could follow her forever. I was getting really graphic sexual texts and voicemails. At first I thought it was Will, but... Abby's going to leave me high and dry? She doesn't want to be with me? Fine. But I'm going to make sure that nobody wants to be with her either. People said that they would come to my house 
threatening to hurt me. I showed everyone who Abby really is. I found out about this site with my name, my number, my address on it, this porn site. And I knew it had to be Will because these were photos that were taken when we were together. I don't know, it seems selfish to keep all those photos to myself. I did everything I could to get those photos taken down, but they're still there. I don't know what else to do. It's, it's ruining my life. Do I feel bad? No, I don't feel bad. I mean, does Abby feel bad for what she did to me? Will uploaded those intimate photos of Abby without her knowledge or consent. His motive was clear. He wanted to embarrass her and hurt her, and he succeeded. What Will did is considered revenge porn, and it's now illegal in 41 states to upload nude or nearly nude photos of someone without their permission. According to a study published in 2016 by the Data and Society Research Institute, nearly 10 million Americans have been either threatened with or been victims of revenge porn. And although revenge porn doesn't contain an overt threat of bodily harm, it's very much a form of cyberstalking. Dr. Fong is an addiction specialist. He says stalking is a crime, not an addiction. Because of the internet and because stalking has become so much easier and available, it, it makes sense that people who are biologically and psychologically vulnerable to commit those crimes are, are likely going to fall into that. But the questions that we don't know are who's vulnerable, who's going to do it. Red flags can easily be missed, especially if there isn't a reason to suspect that a friend is not really being a friend. That was the case for Kelly. Now 29, she thought she'd made a new friend during her sophomore year of high school. As the two grew closer, the girl confided in Kelly that she had some medical issues. She's lonely, she's sick, she's a good friend. I don't even recall what the actual condition was. Um, I was so naive at that time. I was just there to hear her out and kind of be there for her as support. So we, we started talking about her cousin at one point. And the interesting thing was... Um, her cousin had no cell phone. He had no way of communication except through MySpace. Ah, uh, MySpace. For those of you who've forgotten or never heard of it, about 15 years ago, that was the biggest social networking site in the world. And now today, I have to explain it. Anyway, Kelly and the cousin began trading messages on MySpace about the girl and her medical condition. He told Kelly he appreciated her being there and praised her for being such a good friend. They bonded over their shared concern for her welfare. And back then, we were kind of naive about connecting online. Remember, this was years before terms like catfish made us wary about talking to quote-unquote strangers on the internet. For about six months, they communicated regularly. But Kelly noticed cracks in the stories and details that didn't add up about her friend's cousin or her friend's medical condition. Now very suspicious, she confronted her friend. So I approached her about it, and basically everything unraveled at that point. She said that he was fake. She had made him up because she she wanted to get to know me um, in a more intimate way, so that he did exist, but he had no idea she was taking off his personality and then therefore uh, talking to me, acting like it was him. And then it got worse and worse and worse. Kelly's friend was seeing her every day at school and then pretending to be her own cousin online at night. She didn't stop there. She was also impersonating Kelly online. She was actually cloning my MySpace, word for word, and pictures and everything. Um, and I started to get really freaked out at that point, and I, was, I just didn't understand. 
Kelly told no one what was going on, not her friends, not her parents, no one. She tried her best to avoid the girl at school. She stopped all communication. For weeks, the girl kept trying to reconnect. Then one night, she sent Kelly a text saying that she had a gun and she was going to kill herself unless Kelly met with her to talk over what had happened. Scared and overwhelmed, Kelly finally told her parents the whole story. And then, the school, the girl's family, and the police got involved. Long story short, her aunt came back to us and said, yeah, this, this girl's had issues in the past. We've, we've known this. Her mom has known this. She's a pathological liar. She, she does this to different people, but it was definitely, she was trying to alienate me, you know, for herself. And it was a mental, a mental game. Even after high school, uh, people would ask me about her after the whole thing happened. And I'd go on Facebook and, you know, sure enough, she's on there and she's still got, you know, word for word of what I used to have on my profile on her Facebook. It was just, it was just creepy. It was weird. But at that point, it's been a few years after. I've definitely been, been weary about everyone that that comes in contact with me. You know, you get friend requests from Facebook all the time. You get friend requests on Instagram, you know, all those kind of things. Followers on Twitter, all that stuff. And yeah, you never know who's behind the screen and what lies they can be telling. So I'm always skeptical because it could really mess with you. Despite actually knowing her stalker, Kelly was still very much a victim of the anonymity of cyberspace. She had no way of knowing back then she was communicating with an imposter. And honestly... Today, it's even more difficult to detect if someone is who they say they are online. If you've got a mobile phone or a computer, you can weaponize it and wage what feels like a personal war against anyone. We're going to take a break for a minute to speak with actress Chloe Grace Moretz, who stars in the movie Greta from Focus Features. In the film, she's a young woman relentlessly pursued by an elderly widow hell-bent on forging a very intense relationship. Most of the time I've played a bit more aggressive or kind of, you know, forward characters in life that kind of take life by the horns, but Francis was someone who would much rather prefer to be the person in the corner or on the wall. You know, the only thing I initiate is dropping the purse off, but other than that, it's really everyone else, and I just kind of follow paces, you know? Which is an interesting thing to to put myself in because I am so opposite of that in life. I'm like very much so the one who's like, let's do this, let's do that. Author Jane Hitchcock was working on a new book when she became the victim of a vicious cyber stalker. In 1996, she contacted a literary agency she learned about online. Her nightmare started soon after. Here's Jane with her story. And I called the number and it talked to the guy and he sounded legit and I sent him in my proposal and got an answer within less than a week that he loved it and could he, I send in the manuscript with a reading fee and that kind of raised my alarm and I posted on the group, has anyone else talked with this agency or sent them anything because they said, I'm, I'm wondering if it's a scam. Jane was an experienced and published writer. The fee request made her very suspicious. So she contacted the Attorney General of New York, where the agency was located. They told her they could open an investigation if there were other victims. Without thinking about it, I posted on the group, if you've been you know, scammed by the Woodside Literary Agency, let me know. There may be an investigation. And that was in September. And two months later, someone began impersonating me online. 
to hundreds of news groups, um, basically saying I was into I was hot for love bites, and I was doing a new book on uh, sadomasochistic fantasies, and that I was looking uh, to experience things with people and put down my home address and my home phone number, and I started getting phone calls, and it took me 10 years to find justice. She was tormented and stalked by the owners of the literary agency. The harassment started online and then moved offline one night in the parking lot where she worked. So I, I drove in the parking lot and I saw a car go by me. I didn't think I when I parked. I'm walking and the car goes by me again. And I'm like, well, this is kind of weird. And so I walked up and there was a guy standing in front of the doors and it was one of the school campus police department guys. And I said, I said, you know, I said, I'm probably being really paranoid, but I said, I'm having these issues with somebody online. And I said, and I think that car followed me here. It's already gone around the parking lot twice, just checking me out, going by slow. He goes, which car is that? And I turned around, I said, that one right there. And it went right by us. And as soon as he turned around, he had a badge on his hat. And as soon as the driver saw that, they took off and went running after it. And he couldn't get the license plate number, but he said it was from New York. It got to the point where I was checking under my car for bombs because we didn't have a garage. We had just a driveway. I was always taking different routes home, you know, from work. And these people frightened me when I realized that they drove from New York to Maryland to harass me. And that really bothered me. The Los Angeles Times covered Jane's story in 1997, reporting that she was inexplicably fixated on by the literary agency. In filing her $10 million lawsuit against them, she alleged that they posted frightening and bizarre responses to her, like, quote, how bitter are sour grapes, Be it known that all who attack literary agents have 99% of the time been rejected, so they bite their own tail and cry, cry, cry. Jane channeled her fear and anger into advocacy. She's now the president of a group called Working to Halt Online Abuse to help victims of online stalking, harassment, and cyberbullying. By speaking out, Jane helped get legislation passed, making this behavior a criminal act. It's not computers that we need to protect ourselves from. It's people. Experts like Matt Malone, the owner of security firm Acero, teach people how to safeguard themselves from online harassment. Your information is everywhere. The footprint that you have digitally is everywhere. So your Facebook accounts, your Twitter accounts, your Google accounts that does GPS location tracking, uh, as well as just your social security number and everything else is all living out there on, on the web. That GPS on your phone tracks you everywhere you go. It tracks you out your email accounts and all the emails go in and out, you know, and you can read messages, text messages, the whole nine. So you have your cell phone account, you have your Google account or your your email account, and then you also have your uh, location tracking. I tell everybody if they want to go check to see what's out there, right, you can use Google and it's called Google hacking, but it's just phrases and terms to look to see what data you have out there. So for instance, put maybe your email address in quotes as in a Google search and see what all it pulls up because it may be other connections. If you see a picture of you out there, take that picture and do a Google search on that image and see what other images are out there on other websites. Here's how anybody can protect themselves. One is knowing the information that's out there. Two is limiting the information that is out there once you find it. Three is actually putting two-factor authentication in for all of your accounts. Things as simple as passwords is important because people don't realize, you know, passwords are like underwear. You need to change them every often, every once in a while, and you don't share them with people. 
So bottom line, protect yourself as best you can. It's hard to imagine someone you know or love turning against you, but it can happen. We followed the ill-fated romance between Will and Abby from their first meeting. They started as a young couple in the throes of love and ended up a broken heap of emotions. Anger, resentment, sadness, fear. So the last time that I actually saw Abby was in court. It was over. I just can't believe everything that he did to me, but he's going to jail. I couldn't take anymore. I lost it. I completely lost it. I was screaming at Abby. I mean, the bailiff had to restrain me, but I didn't care. Abby heard me. I just, I don't understand that he'd do all of this just because I didn't want to date him anymore. Afterwards, outside of the courtroom, there were cameras everywhere. I got interviewed in handcuffs. I'm gonna get famous for losing everything. He's in jail, but I don't know. I don't think it's ever gonna be over. What he did to me is gonna stay with me for the rest of my life. The crazy thing is, I don't think that I was crazy. I honestly, I, I still don't. Uh, I knew what I was doing the whole time, 100%. I was trying to stop Abby from leaving me. Of course I think about her. Why would I stop? Will needs to stop thinking about Abby. He needs to heal and move on with his life. Over the course of this series, we've listened to a wide variety of personal stories about unrequited love, obsession, obsessive love, and pathological relationships. We all have a window into this behavior, but some are far more extreme. Now, understanding why and how we get to this mindset is clearer. It's also something not fully understood by the scientific and medical communities, but advances are being made. Same with legal protections. There are now stalking laws in place, but we still have a ways to go. There are also many groups and places to go that can help anyone suffering or victimized by persistent unwanted attention. If you or someone you know is being stalked, there are resources available to help. Call 1-855-4-VICTIM. Call 1-855-484-2846. This podcast was created on behalf of Focus Features by LA Times Studios and does not reflect the views of the Los Angeles Times, nor does it involve the editorial or reporting staffs of the Los Angeles Times.